you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, uh, would you please take them and turn with me to Luke 1, the book of Luke, chapter 1, and we're going to start with verse 68 this week. And while you do that, I'm going to ask God to open up his word for us today. Heavenly Father, we love you. And our desire right now, no matter where we are in Kirkland or the greater Seattle area or the entire world, wherever we are right now, we need to hear from you. That's the most important thing, is that you would speak to us and that you would use us, Father, for your glory and for the display of your beauty. Help us to encounter realities about who you are today that we'd never seen before. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So last week we began exploring uh, this very short passage in the book of Luke that is historically referred to as the Benedictus. And it's this prophetic song that uh, Zechariah, who would be the, the father of John the Baptist, sings just shortly after his son's birth. Like eight days after his son's birth, he starts singing this song about his son, over his son. And his son is John the Baptist, the very one who would be sent before the Messiah, before Jesus Christ, to prepare the people of Israel for the coming Savior. And what I'd like to do right at the beginning is just read verses 68 through 79, the the passage that we're looking at, front to back, and then I want to zero in on two specific verses. And uh, those are going to be verse 74 and 75. So let's read through this passage, and then we're going to zero in on these two uh, small, seemingly small part of this song, but uh, massively important. So it begins like this, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore our father Abraham to grant us. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So one of the central themes of um, this prophetic song is this motif of being delivered from one's enemies. Um, We saw it last week, for example, verse 71 speaks of this promise that the people of Israel would be saved from their enemies and from the hand of all who hate them. And this theme continues all the way through to verse 74, where Zechariah again references enemies. He says, being delivered from the hand of our enemies. And then he depicts what their life would be if they didn't have any enemies. And then finally in verse 79, he talks about being guided into the way of peace, which is obviously, I mean, it would seem to mean at least that the enemies, the threats to them are gone. 
they have the way of peace and they're being guided through to it. And so there's this motif that drives Zechariah's song. And <clears throat> this motif is centered around being free from one's enemies, being delivered out of the hands of those who hate us. But last week, we saw uh, something important about enemies in this passage. We saw last week that the greatest enemy we have, the single greatest enemy that Zechariah and the people of Israel had 2,000 years ago, and the greatest enemy that we face right now isn't some kind of external threat to us. It's not something outside of us. The greatest enemy we face right now is our own sin. The greatest threat we have isn't a physical enemy out here, but rather it's our own desire and inclination to love things more than we love God to pursue things with a greater passion and intensity more than we pursue Him. And this specific enemy and all the actions that we do that flow from this desire that we have for other things over God is why verse 77 in this song links our salvation from our enemies to the forgiveness of our sins. Look at this, verse 77, it says that John the Baptist is going to give the knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. And so there's this connection in the song between being saved by God from your enemies and being forgiven of our sins. And it's from that salvation that we get to the verses that we're looking at today. That's verses 74 and 75. So let's look at them. I want to read them again in context so we can see uh, the specific passage here that I want to highlight today. It's this, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him, serve God, without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So just to be clear, these two verses are focusing on the outcome of the salvation that we've seen running throughout this entire song a salvation that we said last week was achieved specifically by Jesus Christ on the cross. Jesus is the horn of salvation in verse 69. Jesus is how we are forgiven of our sins in verse 77. And so the immediate question when we see these two verses, 74 and 75, side by side, and the realities that are there, the immediate question is, do these verses describe something that's going to happen in the future? Or do these verses describe our present day because the cross has already delivered us from our greatest enemy now let me say it another way do these verses depict a day when the words enemy and threat are no longer in our vocabulary or do these verses depict the life of the christian right now today since we've already been delivered from our greatest enemy through the cross and our forgiveness, the forgiveness that we receive from Jesus. And so the answer to this either or question is actually yes. It's both of these things. And this is precisely what we find in Scripture. There is a future day when every single enemy you can conceive of with your minds will be gone forever. He will be, they will be gone forever. 
Isaiah 9.5, I think, says it best. This is my favorite passage to talk about the removal of every threat. Listen to this, Isaiah 9.5. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire because there won't be any more war. There won't be any more threats. There won't be any more fighting. All of that will be over forever. But we also know that these two verses don't just describe a future reality because serving God, which verse 74 says, and pursuing holiness and righteousness, those realities are already part of the Christian life. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And that means that God's work of salvation isn't just to get us to heaven one day. God's work of salvation is to get heaven into us now in this world. And so by, doing, by showing us in this song that redeemed people um, look like this, redeemed people serve God, redeemed people pursue holiness, God is taking the future reality of um, what will come one day to us and he's weaving that into our present life so that we can become what we already are, redeemed people fully. This is how God conforms us into the image of his son from Romans 8. And we see that as we embrace, for example, verses 74 and 75 in this passage, God is drawing us into the very hope that he has called us to be as redeemed people. And so I want to look at verse 74 and 75 closely. What, what do redeemed people look like? Well, verse 74 begins to tell us, it says that we were delivered from our enemies so that we might serve God. That's the main reason we were delivered. We were delivered so that we might serve God. Our lives were redeemed not only from sin, but our lives were redeemed for God. We belong to God. Our, our hopes, our dreams, our passions, our pursuits, our desires, every aspect of our lives belongs to God now. That's what it means to be redeemed. 1 Corinthians 6, for example, says this. It says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We aren't our own anymore. We don't belong to us any longer. We belong to him. And this is the fundamental difference between us and everyone else in this world is that we belong to him. We exist for one single purpose, and that purpose is to serve the living God and to do his will in this world. That's why we're alive. Everything else in our lives, think about all the things that you do in your lives. Everything else in your lives must be folded into that reality. Um, we have one purpose mainly, and all the other things that we enjoy in our lives are secondary to this one purpose. purpose. For example, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that Christ died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. This is why we live. We live for him. Very simple. But that's what the words serve God mean in verse 74. And if we go down to verse 75, we see the way that we serve God is in holiness and righteousness. That's how we go about serving God. And I think when we hear these words, holiness and righteousness, 
we immediately tend to think of some ethical and moral category. We tend to think of, of these moral lists that we have or these commands that we must obey. And I, I, I don't want you to get me wrong. There is a standard of holiness that we must strive for. There is a way we must live according to Scripture. But these words, holiness and righteousness, in this text are not moral lists. They represent a pursuit of the source of holiness, the source of righteousness. And this pursuit is the pursuit of God himself. This is pursuing God himself. To be holy and to be righteous is impossible without knowing and embracing the fount of all holiness and righteousness. And that is the pursuit of God. It is an unwavering pursuit of God himself. That's what holiness and righteousness are in this text. God isn't interested. This is so hard for me to learn, and I'm hoping that it's easier for you. God isn't interested in our begrudging obedience or discontented rule following. That's, that's not what he desires. That's not holiness. That's not righteousness to, to begrudgingly obey. It is a, that's a, a, a mechanical, behavioral modification that ultimately dishonors God. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 15, 8, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This is an indictment because he's not after, God is not after reluctant moral conformity. He wants our hearts. He doesn't want us just to follow a set of rules because we think it's going to earn anything with him. He wants our hearts. He wants us to love him and to seek him. He desires to be sought after and delighted in for all of his objective goodness. That's what God is after. John 4 says that God seeks worshipers. And this is explicitly why we were redeemed, not for simple rule following. When God is your treasure, when you delight in God supremely, when he's everything to you, and he's the central pursuit of your life, you want to know him and you want to show him to this world. That's what, that's what Zechariah is talking about here when he, when he says, serve God in holiness and righteousness. And then in verse 75, Zechariah says, that our serving of God in holiness and righteousness happens before him all our days. Before him, what does that mean? What does it mean to be before God? <clears throat> this is actually a theological term uh, in the Latin called quorum Deo. And it means to live one's life before the face of the living God. To live one's life like you were in his presence right now. Now one day we will truly be in his presence we will experience the truth of verse 75 with a kind of clarity and fullness that we can't even conceive of in this day. But there is a way in which before him matters now. Living before God matters today. There is a way in which we do that in our current life. And in Acts 23, Paul's giving his testimony before the council and uh, he says that he has lived his life before God in all good conscience. And so he's saying that, that when Zechariah in verse 75 says we need to live before God, that is what Paul is expressing here. I, I'm living as though God is right in front of me every single day. 
Most theologians would say that Coram Deo is like the, the sum of the Christian life. It's what we were made for. It's how we're supposed to live. And it's the reason why all of these things happen in these two specific verses. These verses embody the life of someone who's been redeemed, been delivered by God from their enemy. And they, someone who's embraced the horn of salvation, Jesus Christ. But if you were paying attention, you noticed that I actually passed over two words without engaging them, and I'm going to do that now. It's this phrase, without fear. He says that we might serve him, him, God, without fear. Why does Zechariah include this? And we might say, well, the reason Zechariah includes this is, is certainly because uh, he's envisioning uh, something in the future where there is no enemies anymore. And we live without fear in the future day when God comes back and restores everything and brings his kingdom in fullness when our enemies are gone. Because those two words can't possibly mean anything now. We might say those words can't apply now because we have many enemies right now. We have all sorts of enemies right now. Um, it must apply to a future day when our enemies are gone because, I mean, what's the reason we're watching church online right now? Not all of our enemies are gone. And, I mean, let's just be real. What if I get sick? Or what if my kids get sick or my parents get sick? Or what if, because people are afraid that they're going to get sick, the economy collapses? There's, it feels like there are a lot of enemies right now. This can't possibly be, these two words, without fear, can't possibly be talking about today. And scripture tells us otherwise. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Psalm 118.6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And here's Jesus in John 14.27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And then my favorite, Isaiah 43, 1. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. These two words are not just a future hope. Without fear is meant for today. It's not just a, a day in the future when there are no more enemies, though that will happen one day. God's purpose in these verses, these passages I've just read, is to make a people unshakable in the face of every enemy. In the redemption of his people from their sin, God isn't just promising a day of peace in the future. He is securing for us, through the cross, peace even now in the presence of our enemies. That's what's happening here. The way that God inoculates his people, us, 
from fear, the way he strips down the enemies that are in our lives, even now to this day, is by promising us that he will never leave us and he will never, ever forsake us. He promises, I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. And to be sure, we need to be clear about this. This is not a guarantee of a physical life of health and prosperity. That's not what's being guaranteed here at all. Nor is it a a pie in the sky, heaven over the present life scenario where we trivialize loss in this world and make it nothing. It's neither of those things. What's being promised here is God. That's what's being promised here. God is promising himself in these passages. And in, in our serving of God, in our pursuit of God, in, in, in his holiness and in his righteousness that we do before the face of God, in all of those things, our source of fearlessness is knowing that God is with us no matter what. No matter what. That's the only source, that's really the only source of true fearlessness in all the world. Every other kind of fearlessness is either fleeting or false than this. This is the only true one. It's fixing your eyes on the reality, the truth, that God is truly with us no matter what happens, no matter what happens in this world. In Hebrews 11, there's this scene, the author of of Hebrews depicts this scene uh, where Moses is leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. You remember this passage from, from Exodus. In front of Pharaoh. Think about this. Pharaoh is the most powerful man in the world. And Pharaoh hates Moses. And he wants him to die. And Moses is leading the people of Israel out of Egypt. Listen to what he says, verse 27, one sentence. By faith, he, that's Moses, left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king. Now, why is that? Why is he not afraid of the anger of the king? Like, what could possibly make him not afraid? It says right here, for he, Moses, endured as seeing him who is invisible. That's how he wasn't afraid. And that that person who's invisible here is God. That's how he is fearless, is that he is fixing his eyes on God. The eyes of his heart are anchoring themselves on God. Though he is invisible, Moses knew that he was there. And get this, he would never leave them, the people of Israel, and he would never forsake them. Moses knew that. Even when Pharaoh was about to turn on his word and head out with an army to obliterate Moses and the people of Israel, he knew that God was with him. And here's the rub. Moses also knew that he and the people of Israel did not deserve for God to be with them. They'd done nothing to earn it. In fact, the next 40 years will be evidence to suggest that they have done nothing to warrant God being with them in his presence, and yet he goes with them. And he stays with them. And here's the thing. He promises to do that with us. 
He promises to be with us anywhere. Fear not, for I am with you, he says. Now, what, what, I'm going to draw this in on me, and if you feel like you can join me in this, please do. What have I done to deserve God saying that to me? Fear not, for I am with you. What have I done? What, what have we done, like as individuals, as families, as risen hope? Like, what have we done to deserve God saying to risen hope, fear not, risen hope, for I am with you? What have we done to deserve that? And the answer is simple. We've done nothing to deserve it. Nothing we've done has ever earned that or warranted God saying that to us. But can I tell you something? Jesus has done something on our behalf. On the cross, bearing our sin and our punishment for that sin, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, he absorbs an eternity of forsakenness that was due us for our sin in order that God could turn to us with love in his eyes, with compassion in his eyes and say, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You are mine. You belong to me. I'm going to be with you forever. Always. This isn't a promise of a long life or perfect health. This isn't a promise of tomorrow. This is something that is infinitely better than any of those things could ever be. This is a promise of God giving himself to us. God, the infinite creator and sustainer of the universe says, I'm going to give you myself. You're going to have me. You're going to see the one who is invisible. And that's how you're going to endure in this season. This is who we are. This is what the cross of Christ purchased for us. And we can see it in this text in Luke 1 through Zechariah that we being delivered from the hand of our greatest enemy might serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. The cross of Jesus Christ has made that a reality today for all of us who trust him. So in a few moments, we're going to continue worshiping through the act of communion. And if you're on your own or with a family or with a a gathering of people, feel free to do this, the Lord's Supper. And uh, when you receive the elements, please recognize, recognize that the cup and the bread are not simply an event that happened 2,000 years ago that gets us into heaven. That's not just what they are. They are a picture of the reality that if Christ was in us in the darkest of all hours, while we were yet sinners, Romans 5 says, then there is no place in the entire universe where he cannot say to us with absolute certainty, say to you with absolute certainty, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He says that to you. And allow the reality of of communion to press that deep into your heart and soul. Let's pray. Dear Jesus,
in a season like this when we need to hear your word with great power and we need that word to govern our hearts and our affections and our desires. We plead with you, Father God, that you would take this passage, this text, and the realities that are in it, just these two verses, and that you would infiltrate our hearts so that we would see you and know you as you really are, and that the confidence of those two words, serving God without fear, would be a present reality, not just a future hope. We know it's a future hope, but that future hope that it would stream into the present in our lives so that in our treasuring of you, in our pursuit of you, in our serving of you, Father God, we would be fearless. There's nothing in this world that can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ and the love of God in Christ Jesus. There's nothing in this world that can do that. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would make that real to all of us today, no matter where we are, Father, that that would become reality and that you would be magnified in our joy in knowing you're never gonna leave us and you're never gonna forsake us. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.